my name is Andy Murray, the Executive Director of the Major Projects Association. It's my pleasure to welcome you to our podcast, following up on our seminar from a few weeks ago uh, regarding reimagining uh, global supply chains in the context of major projects. And what's really interesting is when we set up the seminar, it was a suggestion that came from our programme committee, who were responsible for helping us put our forward programme of events together. And when we imagined our reimagining of of global supply chains. The sort of context we had in mind was obviously um, the impact of COVID and, and what we saw went on with people being affected uh, for self-isolation and so on and, and how um, how immediate our supply chains have become and how quickly uh, we have these backlogs or shortages uh, when we have some of those little hiccups. We also had in, ma- in mind you know, issues relating to Brexit and the changing rules and legislation and uh, and workforce uh, impacts that that was having and is likely to have. And of course, we also had in mind, you know, factors relating to net zero and how can, you know, supply chains be a massive part of the solution rather than necessarily part of the problem, in particular when it comes to to major projects. What we didn't have in mind was that by the time that the um, seminar came around, that there was going to be a, a war in Ukraine and the impacts of sanctions uh, and uh, the impact on things like the gas supply and the, therefore the impact on uh, um, cost of, of energy, um, but also the fluctuation in the price of oil, uh, which uh, uh, moved massively from when we decided we were going to do the seminar to when we held it a few weeks ago. Um, and then there are other factors like the global shortage of microchips and uh, what we're seeing, some of the things that are going on where different uh, different industries even are competing uh, to secure those microchips so that they don't interrupt their, their manufacturing and on ongoing retail sales. Um, and then even indeed, even from when we held it, um, we were discussing ports and the role that ports play. And we couldn't imagine that just a few days later, um, we would have the issues over um, Russian ships being sanctioned and either not being allowed to come in or are being allowed to come in and being held and then the PO Ferries um, uh, workforce challenge. So we had a lot going on. And so it was an interesting discussion I, I felt we had that we couldn't have imagined we were going to have at the time when we when we put it on. So I'm joined today um, by uh, a few of the, the speakers and the attendees from, from the session. And we're just going to reflect on some of the points that we discussed at the seminar, just to embellish them a little bit more and also for the benefit of the uh, listeners who, who were unable to attend the event and perhaps would rather listen to us than, than read some of the reports that, that we produce. So to get us going, we'll just do a quick once around our virtual room uh, for our panellists this morning to introduce themselves uh, and then we'll crack on with some of our discussions. So I'll start with you, Ruth. Would you like to introduce yourself? So who are you, where you're from and uh, what's your background? So hi everybody, my name's Ruth Todd. I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at HS2, um, which kind of speaks for itself. My background's quite varied. So I spent 35 years in industry, starting out with a good slug of time in automotive. And then for the past few years, have been working in the public sector. First of all, supporting the army, then supporting the Navy and the submarine enterprise. And then just prior to joining HS2, I ran the vaccine programme for the UK. So I guess that's my quick potted history, Andy. 
Thank you, Ruth. And you were our chair for our events. And so um, uh, thank you once again. Brilliant chair. And we've had great feedback for how effortlessly you made it to appear. So I think that's always a, a great sign of a, of a good chair. So uh, thanks. Thanks, Ruth. Uh, Professor Michael, um, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, well, yeah, Michael, Michael doesn't matter. Uh, so I am Mike Lewis. I'm a professor of operations and supply management at the University of Bath School of Management, where I've been for the last 16, 17 years now. Um, and I guess I was asked as the academic on the panel to be uh, provocative. Um, I, I hope I have some skill in the game. I expect most, I like most my work to be applied in in, 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 in a true meaning of the, set, of the word. But I, I, yeah, I, tr I try to push our thinking perhaps a few years further down the down the line than, uh, than the immediacy of now. Although, of course, a lot of things we discussed are foreshadowing the future. Great, thank you, Michael. And uh, you were definitely provocative and also you, know, you, you used some different techniques. So one point comparing what we were discussing and introducing uh, the, the which doctor was the best doctor in Doctor Who. So uh, um, that's no, the I first think time I, I said, believe- There was no debate about that, Andy. I think I said it was Tom Baker. Uh, yeah, that's true. Scientist <laughs> fact. <laughs> but it's uh, definitely the first time Doctor Who's ever come up in one of our seminars, so thank you very much for that. Uh, Sean, same questions to you. Yeah, hello everybody. I'm Sean McCarthy. Um, I'm a Director of Action Sustainability and I'm also Chair of something called the Supply Chain Sustainability School, uh, which is a collaboration in the construction sector around upskilling the supply chain. Um, my background, I started life as an engineer, but most of my background is in procurement. Um, I had 10 years with Shell and 11 years with BAA. Over that time in BA, my career got progressively greener and I got more and more into sustainability in the late 90s. Uh, in 2006, I made a decision to, to pack in having a proper job um, and I did two things. I, I took a role as chair of the Commission for a Sustainable London 2012. Um, this was an oversight body providing assurance of the uh, the promise that the London 2012 Olympics will be the, the most sustainable games ever. Um, that was quite a high profile role reporting directly to the, the political leaders and um, I started Action Sustainability which is uh, still a small business we employ 30 odd people um, our specialism is in sustainability and supply chains and through that business we, we run the, the supply chain sustainability school as the delivery partner. Great thank you very much Sean and uh, lastly Richard uh, same questions to you. Yes hi Richard Valentine Chief Executive of the British Ports Association so we are a trade association, the National Trade Association for Ports and Harbours, representing around 400 uh, ports, piers, jetties, marine terminals up and down the country. Uh, my background is policy, legislation, public affairs and lobbying, uh, and particularly uh, focused on transport policy and trade policy. Great. Thank you, Richard. So um, I'm just going to um, start with uh, you, if I may. Uh, uh, Ruth, um, regarding one of the things you you said in your chair's introduction, and that was around you know supply chains need to be prepared for the unknowns because hiccups will happen. They're an inevitability that there will be challenges uh, in the supply chain. So, what sort of things can you know major projects do to help them you know address these unknowns? Yeah, thank you for that question. It's it's it's, a, it's kind of my life's work, I think, to be absolutely ahead of the game because there is always something you hadn't expected that's going to happen, whether it's 
inflation, which is, I think, going to be a real subject for us over the next few years, whether it's the genuine effect of climate change, which is another thing I'm really worrying about at the moment. There are lots of things that we don't yet know, aren't there? And we can have a pretty good punt at a list of them. And that's the where it starts, I think, is going, so what are the sort of things we ought to be prepared for? Um, things like global unrest and a pandemic would have been on that list if we sit back and think about it, because they're known as as risks that the world is, is expe expecting. So first of all, have some foresight and think a little bit about what the future might might hold. And then to support that, there are a couple of, sort of key ingredients for me. First is to know your supply chain. So um, I'm an advocate of, of supply chain mapping. So that's understand, understanding down into the tiers of supply, who is enabling your output. And that's working collaboratively with a number of partners into the supply chain, being deeper in that, in that um, so adding into that some categorization, I guess. So looking at those areas where you have higher risk and looking more deeply into those and in those where you've got lower risk being a bit shallow. So you've got to be you've got to be measured and proportionate in the work that you do. But that visualization and understanding of what's going on, both from a um, geographic perspective, and that served us. And we, we, we've been doing that. I've been doing that for the last few roles. So submarines and vaccines and HS2 have pretty good geographic understanding of their supply chains down to in submarines down to tier 10. We, you know, it really helps when something like a conflict happens or something like a pandemic happens that's going to put friction into borders. And that, that um, knowledge is is really helpful to you to understand. And then last but not least, how you manage your data. So, so the other sort of key thing I'm very keen on is making sure that we have strong performance understanding of our supply chain. So you, you understand um, areas of fragility, areas of risk, areas that are likely to um, not be as robust when they're presented with challenge and that those two those two big things visibility and visualization of your supply chain and the data that you hold about your supply chain are really good preparations alongside thinking a little bit about what the future might hold and just imagining some of the things you might need to be prepared for great thank you with this um... There's, there's a lot of top tips to unpick from that one. I'm sure people will probably want to rewind and, and listen to that uh, a few times. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, Michael, um, one of the things you mentioned in, in your um, talk and also in the, the Q&A that came from the, the attendees of the seminar was um, uh, like avoiding the use of the term supply chain. And, you know, and, and then I was sat at the back thinking you know, you know how, how bad is that of us that we've titled an event and uh, and the, the name of it in itself is perhaps part of the issue and you talked about supply systems uh, in that it's um, it's not a straight sort of top to bottom linear chain of, of activity can, can you sort of explain that a little bit more yeah so it i don't really know well I, I know exactly the provenance of the word chain but it's it's one of those things that gets thrown into a conversation becomes amplified because people find it a useful shorthand and suddenly it becomes the subject of the conversation but it's such a powerful metaphor that it it frames our thinking about it and of course if you think about it metal links click together that pull in one direction only that won't work if you push them in the other direction that don't give any sense of the hinterland of these supply systems and i deliberately use that word Even 
even and, and I agree with almost everything Ruth said in, in her introduction, uh, in particular the idea of the visualization and understanding what that system looks like. That's lecture two in you know supply management for me. But is this idea of tier is a bit similar. It implies a kind of staged gate log logic that isn't really there. One has to only look at the, and I, I think I use this as a comment rather than a slide, but only has to look at the Grenfell Tower investigation and look at the systems that have evolved around the provision of what was an apparently quite simple artifact onto a, a refurb of a building to see the connections left and right and up and down and loops back and forth where people supply to a company who supply back to them, who supply to a third firm who supply back to them, with subcontracting of some of the work and not all of the work, different kinds of contractual arrangements. And to think about that as a chain is to oversimplify. So, so our metaphors mustn't oversimplify. And, and again, Ruth's introduction is powerful here. When we recognize complexity, when we recognize volatility, then it, it being too simplified in our thinking is not our friend. And so that's my key. Think about where are the nodes, where are the connections between those nodes? If you must have a word, use network. So you can think about it as a pattern in space. But again, don't think that where you start in that process is the end of that system, that there's stuff going on after you as well. There's, we're often quite egocentric. In fact, there's a phrase of that in, in, in network theory, the egocentric network, where we think of ourselves as the focal node, when in reality, it's something a long way further down. And in major projects, of course, normally it's the, it's the public and they get, can get forgotten in some of these conversations very easily. So yeah, I'd banish it, and I'd banish it both as a provocation and as a way of starting to think differently about the supply system that organizations find themselves dealing with. And, and that sort of the recognition that it's complex um, and, and perhaps overcome our inbuilt need to simplify things I think you know would, you gave Grenfell as the example there, but but that um, complexity means that by definition it's quite difficult to understand responsibilities and accountability. But if we've simplified it in our own mind and our own sort of um, models, then we can give ourselves false confidence that there are, that, that there is an easily defined approach to responsibility and accountability, and and that's where perhaps these things break down. Um, so it's a really good point. So, so thank you, uh, Mike. Um, so Richard, coming on to, to you, um, supports um, are a part of that that system. And if we want to reimagine, you know, the, the, the system that will help our major projects um, going forward, then then we need to think about our ports, uh, particularly for our infrastructure projects. I mean, not all of our major projects are, are infrastructure, but if we just focus on those uh, for, for the moment. And of course, ports, um, you know, take a, um, a lot of investment and, and you know, that, that investment might play out over a, a period of time. One of the things you mentioned was how much money is being spent on ports uh, each year. Can you remind us of how much that, that is? Yes, it's 1.2 billion in the last um, year of COVID, so um, to, to now. So quite a substantial amount of funding. And that is privately drawn um, from a mixture of uh, types of investors, both international types, big pension funds, infrastructure groups, etc. But also from traditional lenders, high street banks, etc. for smaller projects across um, probably around 100 or so ports that are do doing any projects at any one time, uh, ranging from relatively modest size investments of tens of thousands 
up to um, £300 million for new facilities, new berths at London Gateway or £400 million for a new South Harbour at Aberdeen. And of course, as our wish to simplify things, it would be easy to think of all of our ports as being the same, but just serving different parts of the country. But I think you mentioned that they're all very different in terms of their capabilities and the facilities that they have. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, different different ports do different things, as we always uh, say in our sector. And um, just look at the trade outlook. You've got unitised trade, things like um, containers and uh, and. Uh, accompanied and unaccompanied roll-on roll-off freight with uh, lorries and trailers being dragged on but you've also got uh, liquid bulks oil products etc which has been in the news lately because of the um, uh, effects of uh, the um, uh, global situation and Russia and sanctions following their invasion into Ukraine and then other dry bulks project cargoes etc all these ports do things in different ways and what we don't have in the uk uh, is a big sort of super hub ports area like rotterdam or antwerp etc mm -hmm. where you have clusters um huge clusters around a particular key gateway for a huge uh, part of europe uh, as they do in the netherlands for example ours are more spread around which i would say uh, has benefits as well because it gives importers and traders choice there's competition in the market keeps prices down uh, and gives people and shipping lines uh, different options to go into different regions so we we have a wonderfully competitive market but uh, i would say that uh, along with that we have sort of certain other issues that arise uh, such as uh, familiarization with supply chains and i think ruth and mike i fully agree with their opening statements one thing i, I think was very impressive about ruth is is that knowledge and that understanding that if you're going to go into some major projects from a procurement point of view, from a sourcing point of view, you need to have the understanding uh, of where things come from, etc. The only handbrake point I would add to that is, but not many people do have that knowledge. So we have a huge amount to teach people. People need to understand where things are coming from, why costs rise etc uh, and it's it's tough for us because we're just one part of the supply chain yes and uh, and i'm going to uh, my my next comment is uh, partly to manufacture a nice segue to sean in terms of sustainability but of course our ports also um, serve all of our wind farms that that we've got uh, around the the country as, a, as an island nation we've, we've got uh, more than our uh, unfair share of, of wind farms and, and that's a big business in its own right isn't it in terms of the ports that service those yes absolutely so it's not just trade that ports specialize in we also facilitate uh, loads of hubs for offshore activities like traditional activities like fishing uh, and recreational leisure but now the new industries and and uh, things to do with energy supply you're absolutely right offshore renewable wind is is a big opportunity for the uk and and that would mean facilitating things through our seaports and there's a lot of competition now from ports to be the uh, firstly the hubs for manufacturing and then mobilization and construction but also uh, on a longer scale you know servicing those wind farms with high skilled jobs uh, sometimes for up to 25 or 30 years, depending where they are. Uh, and, you know, watch this space. There'll be lots going on there. The only um, the only challenge we have is there's lots of other things that ports want to do. So there's a competition at ports for land use, for space, for capacity. 
uh, for access. So it, it's a fairly crowded market, but it's uh, it's um, certainly coming through the pandemic. We're feeling pretty good about ourselves as the ports industry in comparison with some other mm-hmm. transport um, organisations and uh, um, industries like aviation, for example, who've really been hit through travel and transport limits. And of course, now we've got the you know, through the uh, National Infrastructure Commission with the National Infrastructure Pipeline and uh, with the IPA overlaying that with the government's major project portfolio, we actually do have a sort of a sense of, you know, what demands we're likely to have on our ports um, to, to deliver those major projects over, you know, the next 10 to 15 years. So uh, perhaps we can be more, more proactive in that that investment and planning. Uh, rather than be active as those major projects are going through their initiation steps. Um, so I set up my segue um, to on sustainability, Sean. Um, w- uh, sustainability came up a lot during the seminar, um, but I felt we didn't do a, a, you know, a, a deep dive into the topic uh, in, in its own right. So from, from your perspective, what can you know, major projects do with respect to the supply chain to, to really get that jump in, in sustainability that we need for, you know, 2050 net zero and, and some other aspects around biodiversity, for example. Yeah, major projects and clients in particular are the key driver. There's there's no doubt about that. And certainly from my experience on the London Olympics, I, I had a, a unique role um, to provide oversight to sustainability for that particular program of work. And what that did was that that led to an incredible tension in the supply chain or the supply network, um, if we want to use the uh, the new expression, um, because the supply chain was actually required to demonstrate its performance against some very clear sustainability targets. So a major project needs to set, set its stall out, be very, very clear what the expectation is of the supply chain and then to follow it up and and certainly um you know again i'm completely agreeing with a lot of ruth's earlier comments um about understanding what that performance really looks like now what happened on the olympics as a result of that um was the the main contractors the tier one contractors suddenly realized that their supply chain was not competent to deliver on those sustainability objectives mm-hmm. um it, it, you know that they didn't know how to measure it it gave rise to a tower of babel of spreadsheets all over the place um and you know loads of people arguing about data up and down the uh, the, the value chain and across it um but also recognizing that that down there in the the multiple tiers of supply chain in the construction sector the knowledge wasn't there um and sad to say it's it's improved but it still isn't it needs to get better um and that was why we started the supply chain school it it was that there was a direct correlation between the the work on the olympics the demand from a major project and then the need to upskill that supply chain so they actually understand what's expected of them and and how to deliver it and you know if we fast forward then to projects like hs2 that 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 has been replicated you know that that demand very clear target setting objective setting and requiring those suppliers to actually report on their performance and to to, um, quantify what they're doing within the value chain is really really important so i I can't emphasize enough the role of the client in all of this if you work with 
um, as as I do, um, most of the tier one contractors in the construction sector and, and also outside construction. And I run exercises with their senior executives to say, well, what are your key drivers? What's driving you to be sustainable? The client always comes out top. If the client doesn't ask, then quite frankly, a lot of them don't do it. Things are improving. Um, I am seeing contractors these days with their own sustainability objectives and they are starting to drive the agenda. Um, but ultimately, it's all about the client. Great. That's, um, thanks, John. So um, our um, listeners who are sort of regular readers of our highlights report will know that we often finish the report with a further considerations or further points for discussion uh, that was sort of came out of the seminar, but we still need to delve in further. And, and actually, one of the three uh, points that, that um, our, our report writer picked up on was the very point you just made, John, which is the, the role of the client in sort of setting the tone around um, you know, sustainability and, and, and other factors. So it's a question I'll, I'll put this out to all of you if anyone wants to sort of wave and, and, and come in, which is what initiatives are there? What can we do um, to help influence clients thinking about being more resilient in, in regard to you know, how they work with their supply chain or supply network. Mike, do you want to come in? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there are a number of things, right? And, and the question of, of capability uh, in terms of both the skills, so what Sean's talking about there, knowledge, awareness is, is critical for it. Um, but equally, I think in just sheer quanta of capability, I think a lot of organisations, you know, better buying gives you better supply chains. It's not, it's not, it's not very difficult. But if you have a very, very thin buying activity, and it's spread across. I'm looking at my, my description of a system with all that complexity, so many facets. Ruth's Ruth's aspiration to be forward-looking as well. So you you multiply up again the number of questions you're having to ask that team. There just needs to be more of them. And I think from government down through that system, there's not enough really great buying. Now I, um, I might I would say that maybe wouldn't I? Because I trained some of those people. Sean might say the same. But it's clearly true that we've tried to make that too thin an activity when it needs to be a really fat activity. Uh, to deliver that capability so that would be my first my first aspiration better buying gives you better supply systems but better buying needs more capability which will include more people uh, and you and, and and i i hope that's where we're in terms of travel but the thing i said at the end of the the last conversation on the panel was we're competing then for the same people that every other functional activity is competing for and that's going to be a profound challenge uh, but yeah but better buying better capability so, so I guess I'd probably sit in a fairly unique position because I've been both client and supplier um, and have run some pretty gritty, difficult contracts. Mostly my uh, my sort of midterm career was going in where things weren't working and trying to fix them. Um, and usually when my client was pretty angry with us. So the challenge when you're in that situation is who faints first. And my favourite expression is, so who's going to collaborate first? And that, 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 I agree about buying, but there's a whole period after you've bought in a major project where you are running a contract. And my preferred situation is the contract sits in the drawer and we're spending our time working about how we how we deliver our outcomes. And the, the, cha the challenge when things aren't going well is how to have those conversations in a way that doesn't put anyone in a harm situation, but allows you to get under the skin of the things that aren't aren't working. Um, and when things are going well, to leverage the things that are going well to be even better. 
and that uh, collaboration for me is is the key I think in terms of initiatives from my perspective as both a supplier and a client in allowing us to have um, meaningful conversations often gritty when stuff's going badly quite exciting when things are going well and inspiring but being able to talk about it and put um, put everyone's cards on the table and be transparent and know the situation back to my data point, know actually what's going on rather than what people say is going on, um, is really helpful for both the supply side of the conversation and the client side of the conversation. But I recognize the responsibility as a client because everything I'm responsible for is delivered through somebody else. As HS2, I think we're a reasonable, we've got we've got a reasonable relationship with our first tier suppliers and we're currently exploring what that means down into our supply chains because we're not yet convinced that we've created that same ethos and culture into the into the supply network and it is genuinely a network. Mike's point is very well made because there are a number of suppliers who are prevalent across our supply our supply network as well as um, down into it. So it is an incredibly complex system. Um, but to know how to get the best from each of them will make us successful as a client. And that's not just a, a, a linear a bilateral relationship, it's a relationship that sits across that network. So there's a lot of soft skills in it is my is my is my um answer to the question. Which initiatives are there? The soft skills are the ones that are most powerful. Yeah, and it's interesting because collaboration was one of the other sort of um, further yeah. points for consideration that, that came up. And I was thinking about that after the event in that the collaboration when we put it in the context of the system that Mike's been talking about isn't necessarily um, client to supplier, but it could be client to client. So collaborating in terms of use of um, scarce resources across uh, different different clients. So I'm aware, you know, in terms of um, some discussions I've had recently over the national shortage of archaeologists, and uh, since we've got lots of uh, you know infrastructure projects going on, that something that can hold up a project where you need to go and do some investigation, then having access to those archaeologists, um, you know, can be the difference between, uh, you know, the, the the delay that could be caused and uh, some of the additional benefits that can come from from schemes. Um, Richard, you've got your, your hand up, being very polite. Would you like to, to come in? Yeah, just a, a slightly kind of, I guess, a left field um, comment or suggestion. Um, now, we've worked as the port sector, we've worked very closely with various government departments over the last five, six years in the run-up for the UK's departure from things like the European Customs Union and the single market, which have um, effectively been political decisions. We understand why those polit political decisions uh, were made, etc., and why policymakers wanted to push forward th with um, those aspirations. But what I think it highlighted is there was a general lack of understanding at both government and industry level about what the implications of uh, the UK's departure from um, the European Union was from a trade and logistics and supply chain point of view and uh, that's not anyone's fault I would suggest however we can look at ways to enlighten policymakers and industry I, I wouldn't say that um, civil servants officials and ministers are alone in not understanding the full breadth and complexity of our supply chains uh, and a slightly kind of unusual suggestion, we, we, we need to have more focus in government on uh, supply chains, logistics, and you could throw in sourcing for big public sector projects into that, although where I'm coming from is, is more a sort of national resilience point of view. 
And instead of, you know, for example, having uh, bays standalone or having the Department for Transport looking at transport issues uh, or other uh, government departments where, when it becomes relevant to their portfolio, I wonder whether we need a part of government that just focuses on supply trade chains, uh, tr trade thrown in with that, uh, you know, UK resilience, etc. Now, you know, that's not going to solve the world, but it does keep a uh, hardcore of uh, government officials looking at this agenda instead of them being at, for example, the HMRC, uh, looking at customs processes, um, you know, one year and then being moved over to look at VAT or other tax um, opportunities, etc., uh, which are which are not really connected to supply chains. So we're keen to see a bit more focus on um, how we do that and also bringing in industry academia mike etc you know we, we need to get people uh, who have experience uh, in in these sectors working in government and it was great to see the initiative to have sir dave lewis the former chief executive of tesco's uh, being brought in to advise the government last year but it, nothing really came of it unfortunately and that's not a criticism of dave lewis uh, it just sort of petered out i don't know whether that was more a sort of you know pr piece we're going to do something and, and perhaps Dave Lewis was, you know, very uh, wealthy in his knowledge and experience, but perhaps he wasn't quite the right person for that. Perhaps we needed someone a bit more kind of lowbrow, uh, someone a bit more kind of in the in the nuts and bolts of uh, trade, etc., to come in and lead these kind of things. But yeah, it's it's slightly wacky and out there, but let's let's have a think about how we can improve uh, understanding across government, but also in industry. Yeah, it's really interesting. The, the um, in the the vaccine task force, if you read the uh, the NAO interim report, one of the things they said was it was the ability to bring a group together that worked across government departments that enabled that, you know, that that initiative to be so successful. And I think what you just sort of eloquently highlighted there, Richard, the the challenge where you've got different departments having a an impact on on the sort of resilience of the, the supply system and the, the role of ports from your perspective in particular. Um, sadly, we're, we're, we're getting towards the end of our roundtable discussion. So I'm going to finish with one um, last question and I'll, I'll do it in reverse order so we get a bit of symmetry to our um, to our podcast. So I'll start with, uh, with Sean. And my, my question is, if I could give you a magic wand and you could wave it only once, and bear in mind that our session was reimagining global supply chain. So we now use that sort of future time frame. So let's set a time frame of five years. So if we can imagine a significantly improved su supply chain or supply network in five years time, um, what what would have been done to have enabled that? So Sean, what would your magic wand be used to change to get that, that improvement that we would like to see? What I would like to see is the type of interaction between supply chains in five years time that we were actually doing on Heathrow Terminal 5 in the 1990s, where the, the, the key suppliers are pre-selected against an agreement and required to work together. Um, and interesting kind of commercial techniques where, you know, there's a risk pot and money is taken out of the risk pot on a no blame, no fault um, basis, that the project is insured across the, across the piece and not by individual contractors. There are examples of very large projects that follow that type of philosophy, but the vast majority of projects do not. We still have the traditional tiered from top to bottom supply chain um, where subcontractors are treated very, very badly down the value chain. 
people are not employed under under good conditions and everybody pushes risk down to the organization that is least able to deal with it i would like to see that go away on all of our projects great thank you sean so that's something for us to come back and revisit in in five years time or, or through the journey to get there in five years time so richard same question to you what's your magic wand going to be used for I'd, probably, I'd, I'd be a bit negative. There probably isn't a magic wand. There's nothing we can do. This is a very much a market-led sector. Unless we're going to, um, you know, suddenly change our sort of government strategy and, and get government sort of hands-on supply chain, start running shipping lines, etc. I think it's just something we need to be more resilient, I would say. We need to be more accepting. I think there was quite an interesting debate at the conference we had about, um, you know, the various kind of extreme experiences we've had in terms of the pandemic of brexit etc and i think as i pointed out although yes the pandemic was absolutely massive and uh, massive and brexit is is a huge um challenge for us to get used to there's always been issues that get kind of focused focus the mind of policymakers. they get get us very excited in in the media etc and i think we need to be a bit more resilient to those and understand this is going to come and it's it's part of uh, supply chain management is you're going to have to deal with problems and challenges and, and you know we're gonna to have to toughen up and prepare strategically for them so I, I would just suggest in the era of 24-hour news and social media etc that we just have a calming you know kind of measured process to these things and we only react when it really is getting serious and otherwise we just need to kind of get our heads around and understand supply chains much better thanks Richard so if you're not using your magic wand I'm going to take it back and use it to, to hope that Arsenal win the uh the Premier League next season so there we go we reused it so Mike over to you well, I'm not going to echo that. If if I advocate for a systems perspective, then one of the things you learn very quickly is don't chase that magic lever, that magic bullet, because that can make things worse. And I I hope I conveyed that in my presentation. But it's it's a lot of supply chain challenge is stuff we do to ourselves, even without talking about policy at the at the macro level. Stuff we do to ourselves with the wrong communication, the wrong data at the wrong time, and the wrong pricing incentives. So I think that systems perspective requires us to take a step back but that's not to diminish and this is my other complimentary message the profound urgency of the challenges we face and we didn't talk enough about climate change but all of the things we have been talking about are uh, as i said a foreshadow of that food if if we think about energy disruption we are facing now that is not going to go away as we transition from one form of uh, 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 of energy source to another so all that volatility you need to treat it as a kind of training ground for what's coming the big challenge is have we got the energy i see a lot of very tired people out there and again that reflects my plea for more people more capability because if we keep asking the same brilliant people like ruth to do more and more and more and more we will break them great thank you mike i think you used your one then because i was about to steal it back and uh, wish for the champions league the year after but i think you did actually use it so uh, <laughs> thank you so ruth last question to you what would you use your one for yeah well i'm not a believer in one so there you are you can get your, you can get your second mission although being a being someone who shape who, who follows the odd shape ball i'm not really sure i'm that wild about a football outcome and uh yeah as a, as a rugby mum it's definitely something that i'm um i'm very close to so um I guess I'm, I'm going to come at this slightly differently and say, what do I aspire to? What direction do I want to travel in rather than 
um, expecting to be able to achieve that ultimate outcome. And for me, I want a world where I really talk about carbon and I talk about sustainability rather than, and that's a much more predictable world where I talk about the next crisis. So my, I'm going to talk aspirationally rather than practically, which is, it, for those who know me will know that's quite unusual. Um, I, I really want to be in a world where our focus is on the carbon agenda, where we're thinking about looking after our world and our supply chains are there to make that happen. I want a world that's much more predictable and I can guess what's going to happen next and therefore take the stress away from my people because they are able to work in a way that is uh, is more predictable and is more um, is more comfortable for them to be in um, and, and try and help make sure that my kids' futures are in good shape. So that that's my aspiration. It's not a magic wand thing. It's a direction of travel for me rather than something we'll ever get to. The complexity of our network of supply, our um, challenges that come near term one on top of another mean that that will always be something that's challenging to achieve, but we have to have a focus in a direction and that for me is where we should be headed. Great, thank you, Ruth. And I think that's a, a sentiment and in fact, all of your responses that we'll, we'll all, you know, we can all agree with and, and get behind and, and links really well to the association's um, 2025 strategy where we've set out uh, three landmark objectives uh, and uh, you know one of those is around moving the dial on environmental sustainability for of major projects also diversity uh, across major projects and, uh, and leadership capability we see as a key enabler for the other two uh, to happen um, thank you very much well thank you very much for the, the time you gave in, in preparing for and, uh, and and presenting at our seminar you know, but also then following up and giving us your time again today uh, i think it just adds to the richness of our of our events that we can have some of these follow-up conversations and for those people listening thank you very much for your time uh, to, uh, to to download or to click on the link of uh, whichever your um, podcast platform of choice is uh, and uh, and uh, just to um, let you know that if you want to read the full report and the highlights report you can find them from the association website where you can delve into some of these points in a little bit more detail. So uh, thank you very much.